The following is intended for mature audiences only. Discretion is advised. Thank you so much for downloading this episode of So What Do You Really Do? The podcast where I, your host, Dead Air Dennis Maller, talks to artists and entertainers about their day job. And the artist and entertainer on the podcast today is comedian and helicopter tech and Marine Mitch Burrow. Now, we are in uncharted water on this episode. We are out of the studio. We are in Plano, Texas. We're recording. We recorded. We, I, I recorded with my guests uh, this podcast in Plano, Texas during the Plano Comedy Festival at the Plano House of Comedy. Plano came up a lot in that, in that introduction. Plano, I said Plano a lot. Uh, I was, and I, I was accepted to the third uh Plano Comedy Festival of my career, at least. I mean, this is, I think, their fourth or fifth. I forgot lost. But this was the fir- third time I've been accepted to a Plano Comedy Festival. First time I actually got to show up to it in Plano. The first one, I think, was in 2018. I'm going to go with 18, 18 or 19. Uh, I was accepted in the festival. And I got an acceptance letter. I got all the information. They put me in the Facebook group. And then when I went to see what show was I, I was on, I never got an email. Started looking at the ticket dates and looking at all the show lineups, and I was not on a lineup. Awkward. So I emailed them and said, hey, you guys, uh, you, you accepted me into the festival. Here's the acceptance letter. Uh, you asked me about available dates. I gave it to you, and uh, I'm not on any of the shows. Did you make a mistake maybe? And they're like, oh, we probably did. We'll get that fixed. Hold on. And I was like, well, FYI, I'm only available from this date to this date, and they put me on the date I wasn't available. So I was like, I can't. Like, this was my plan was to fly to Plano, do the festival, and then fly to Baltimore for my friend's wedding because I was in his wedding and then come back to Boston. And I end up that you're only going to the wedding uh, because I had to bail out of the festival because I couldn't change my arrangements. Uh, but so it was what it was. Uh, but then the uh, 2020 got accepted again and then the pandemic hit. So they went virtual and I did the virtual one right from this studio right here in Boston. I was able to do. My Plano Comedy Festival, 2020 Plano Comedy Festival sets. It was a great time. I know people dogged on Zoom shows, but you know what? I had good experiences and bad experiences, just like you have shows in real life that are good or bad. But I had great shows. Unfortunately, didn't get a good tape out of them. For some reason, my tape came back like 720p, all pixelated. It was terrible. Um, And I think the other show I was on was a roast show, which roast battling people you don't know. It's always weird. Uh, but I was so excited to be able to go to Plano this time around because I was like, take a nice long week vacation. I have money from the job I'm making. I got some good airfare, some a good Airbnb, which, by the way, I don't think I'm ever doing Airbnb again. It's just weird. Unless I'm going to, like, get an entire place to myself and it's something, like, exotic or something, like, fancy. Not just, like, a room in a house. That's too weird. That that's, was my experience. And it was like, no, this is... I don't want to do this again. I'd rather just go to a hotel, which I will be getting a hotel, uh, a Marriott, actually, because I do enjoy the Marriott. Yes, it's mm, la too da, Mr. Fancy Pants, uh, for the Hell Yes Comedy Fest. Uh, speaking of the Hell Yes Comedy Fest, I'll talk about it now, right now. November 16th, 4 p.m. at the Comedy House New Orleans, Comedy House NOLA. We will be doing a live So What Do You Really Do podcast. I have three amazingly funny Hilarious guests with amazing jobs. You can purchase your tickets by going to the House of Comedy NOLA. You can also check the link in the description here. Also, of course, you can always buy tickets, get tickets to all the shows at deadairdennis.com. 
So if you're in the New Orleans area, if you're in Louisiana, if you want to travel to New Orleans and ha- spend a week checking out the Hell Yes Comedy Fest and come to a live taping of So What Do You Really Do? I would immensely appreciate if you came to the live taping. I want to make sure there's an audience there. Uh, you can find all that information at deadairdennis.com. I would appreciate This is going to be the first live in front of an audience uh, show. Not the first time outside of the building. We've done plenty of outside of the building shows, uh, just like this one that we did with Mitch Burrow at the Plano Comedy Festival. So please, again, check out, if you're going to come to Hell, no, Hell Yes Comedy Fest, please, no, Thursday, November 16th, 4 p.m. at the House of Comedy NOLA. Come see a live taping. So what do you really do? This podcast that you're listening to. But talking about the podcast, Mitch Burrow. Mitch was great. Um, all right, here's the thing. <sighs> I don't want to sound like I'm talking bad. I'm not. I'm not talking trash. But clearly, Mitch and I had different objectives for this podcast. Maybe he didn't have an objective uh, going into it, but he definitely had an objective once the podcast started rolling. Uh, and it's not a bad thing. I rolled with the punches. What I wanted to talk to him about was his time in being in the, in the Marines and being a helicopter tech and the business of that. Because this is a podcast about day jobs. Well, sometimes you talk to artists. They're like, my day job's boring. I don't have jokes about it. I want to be funny. No. I want, I, want to talk, I want to make jokes about other things. And so they don't realize that the interest of this podcast, the audience, the reason you're listening is to hear about the interesting things that some of us comedians and entertainers have to do to support our industry of comedy. I, think, I don't want to say he had a chip on his shoulder. I think he definitely needed some venting of frustrations. Uh, look, sometimes, like I said, you do a show that's great. Sometimes you do shows that aren't. His show was great. It was just, unfortunately, I don't think, and he admitted it. It's not, I'm not telling stories out of school. I'm not gossiping. I'm not saying, and it's not his fault. It was just not well attended. My own shows at the Plano Comedy Festival were not well attended, which means I also just did not get another good tape either. But that's the anxiety I have to deal with. But uh, I think Mitch was a little upset about that going into our interview after a show. And I think he wanted to vet some frustrations about that. And, you know, while I tried to get him on track talking about the jobs, we ended up talking more about how he got into comedy and his opinions of it and where he thinks he's at with his comedy. And, and that's stuff also that I wanted to talk to him about. We had a limited time. Uh, so we got through it pretty quickly and I really just had to steer him into the conversation that I think he wanted to talk about, you know, and I had to notice that as an interview, I have to notice what it is my guests want to talk about despite my better intention, find the actual story. And that's what I did. And I think it's a great conversation. It's a, Mitch has a very interesting story. He's a very funny comedian. And I do wish him all the best of luck. And trust me, you'll hear me talking about inventing some of my own frustrations with the industry of comedy and the industry of podcasting and some of the other things too. So I think it was a well-deserved venting frustration uh, for two comedians to talk about what this business is. And I think Mitch has a great story about how he got started in comedy. He may not want to admit to it. He may not want to use it as fodder uh, for certain television shows that care more about your story than they care about you as a comedian, which I think is not right. But anyway, he could have definitely used some of that story to get him farther, maybe in some of those competitions. We'll talk all about it. So please enjoy my conversation with comedian. Oh, by the way, in Texas, I also got... Visited my favorite hat shop in Austin, Texas, the hat box. It no longer has a physical location. It's kind of a, like a speakeasy hat box shop now. And I got this brand new uh, plaid cap. I have another cap to go with it. I, uh, this one's made all 100% cotton, which is 
keeps me warm in the winter and it'll keep me cool in the summer. And then I have another one that's half cotton, half linen, which will also be so relieving of the heat in the, in the summertime. Uh, so I'm excited to be wearing my new hats from them, but you'll see more about my hats. If you keep checking my Instagram or just come ask me about hats in person and you can ask me about hats in person. I know I have a lot of opinions about hats. You can ask me all your questions and hear all my opinions about hats. If you come to the live taping of, so what do you really do at 4 PM, November 16th, Thursday, November 16th at the comedy house. Nola as part of the hell yes. Comedy festival. Enough with the promotion. Thank you so much for listening and please enjoy my conversation with comedian, helicopter tech and Marine Mitch Burrow. Yeah, I figured I can see with all of this traveling this time around, I wanted to see if I could get video done because we just switched over to video with the network that my podcast on, the Big Comedy Network. Uh, because everything in the pandemic, I went remote. So, so I had all the video anyway because I was doing everything through uh, an online service with all that. So what is the Big Comedy Network? Big Comedy Network is a new network started by uh, a comedian named Scott Henry and his wife, Catherine mm-hmm. uh, Henry. And they did, uh, they just, during the pandemic, like they, they really got into Clubhouse, which is that one of those audio social media networks. Yeah, I think that it kind of fell out after. Oh, very, very COVID. quickly. Uh, but they built a nice network of people in that. And they're like, you know what? We've, we've met a bunch of good comedians. Let's do, let's see if we can create a podcast network. So they created their podcast and they, giving a space for, for other people with podcasts, uh, comedians and stuff to be able to have a space and promotion. So and they brought you, my podcast on with them into the network. So do they have like an email list that they send out to everybody like, hey, if you like this one, check out this one? Or I think so. I I let all the all, them handle all the technical stuff now since I ran all of this for 2015 till yeah. this year. So what is that, eight years? I did everything for eight years. So I'm like, all right, I can not have to worry about numbers I don't have to worry about promotion, all this stuff. You handle all that stuff. Let me just handle all the interviewing and editing, and I just give them a complete package. They put everything up now. They do all the promotion, and I just let them handle all the stuff that would drive me personally crazy because of obsessive-compulsive disorder. Okay. But, which, since we're talking about the pandemic, since it started with the pandemic, um, the big comedy network, as a comedian who tours... What was your uh, pandemic experience like? It was amazing. Oh, was it? <laughs> yeah, because I was... I love to hear positive pandemic stories. Nobody else has them. <laughs> a, lot, a lot happened for me during the pandemic. Uh, the end of the pandemic was where things fell apart. But during <laughs> the pandemic, um, you know, when you're not a famous comedian, you go on the road, you make $1,500 for a weekend, and you get a few weekends a year. Like, you're not making a lot of money. So, it was, you know, I was always struggling. I was working as a door guy at the comedy store. So, that was how I was, like, making my living. Uh, and then I was on the on the road maybe once a month. Uh, so, then when the pandemic hit, we were, you know, set up for unemployment uh, as, as, uh, as employees of the comedy store. And, you know, we got our little measly amount of, unemployment but then we got the additional 600 a week and so at this point i'm making more money than i had in the last seven years oh see i was the exact opposite because i was doing freelance and i didn't claim a lot of the work that i was making Mm -hmm. or a lot of the money from the work i was making 
So what they set me up as a freelance artist, what I could prove was half what I was making. Wow. So, do, do, yeah, I, the unemployment itself wasn't good. It was the bonus. Yeah. Was, that we were able to get. That That's what did it for us. So, so I was making a lot of money that way. And then there were places that needed comics. Like, the big headliners weren't doing anything. They didn't want to risk it. So then, like, the improv in Hollywood, they were doing these big outdoor shows. They would have, like, a, a 50-foot inflatable screen. And it would be a drive-in show. So I was performing comedy for like a hundred vehicles. Yeah. Uh, instead of last, they just like honked the horn. Yeah. I was like, okay, this is cool, I guess. Um, and then I got cast to host a show for Fox. Uh, and it, it was only five episodes, but I got that. And then the comedy store was asking me to come in and, and do some shows and do podcasts. So... That was a, that was a, a good thing, and then I met my now wife, and we ended up deciding that we wanted to have a baby together. I was going off roading and camping on a regular <laughs> basis, uh, and then I did America's Got Talent, and I thought that my life was about to change because I got four yeses. Oh, okay. Then COVID ended. And all of the headliners came back, so none of the clubs were booking me. Um, the show that I did five episodes for, didn't get picked up. Which show was it that you did? It was called Crazy Ass Criminals. It was okay. on Fox, and it was like a Tosh Point style yeah. show for America's videos. Home Videos, yeah. Yeah, like, you know, we're just, we're watching criminals do stupid things, and then we're making fun of it. It was just, it was on... <sighs> Every episode, I'm just like, can we get a few more white criminals? <laughs> Because it's me, Aries Spears, and and then a uh, a Mexican dude who's like really popular on radio in Los Angeles. Okay. And so I'm the white guy, and it's just minority after minority. <laughs> and so they're like, Mitch, what kind of jokes do you have for this? And I'm like, not a lot, really. I just feel like he's probably oppressed, and society <laughs> in itself has been really hard on him. And I, you know, honestly, we should just. See if we can help him out instead of locking him up. <laughs> and they were like, Mitch, that's not funny at all. And I was like, well, what's going on in his life isn't funny. <laughs> then they'd have some white crackhead, and I'd be like, this, this bitch is just, oh, man, she got what she deserved. You know? <laughs> so, yeah, it was uh, it was a fun show, though. Uh, but it, it didn't get picked up. And then um, America's Got Talent. I got four yeses from the judges, and then... I'm waiting to find out when my episode's going to air. And then at the last minute, like after they've they've had me give them like... And listen, I would go back on it in a minute because that show can change your life. But, you know, they asked me for pictures of me and my dead granddad. They want pictures of me from when I was the in the Marine story. Corps. Like they want all... Because they did a lot of production work on my story. And so because of all that, I'm like, this is happening. You know, they put a lot of time and effort into it. And then the very last judges audition show, which they tell you the Friday before your episode airs when you're going to be on. And so that was like two months. And they go, yeah, sorry, we're not. 
when I put you on this year. Uh, and the only evidence that I was on the show is when they're doing the judges' deliberations. Like, you can see my picture and name behind <laughs> Simon Cowell's head. So I have friends who do that, who do the audition shows. They never get on the TV show. But you'll see them walking around in the background, and then they'll use America's Got Talent as a credit. I mean, they were <laughs> clearly trying to decide if I was going to move on to the live shows. But for whatever reason, it just didn't happen. But that was my profile picture on Instagram for a while. <laughs> oh, Simon Cowell with you behind him? My picture behind Simon Cowell, yeah. <laughs> So then, yeah, uh, after after all that stuff happened, you know, like, the world opens back up, and I feel like there's, I, I have a, I have a daughter, she's six months old at this point, I feel like everything went bad in my life, so I, I, like, quit doing comedy for a while, and I, I moved to a really rural area of Texas to work on airplanes. Oh, wow. Well, is, we'll talk about the airplanes in a second. And, and that's where I'm at now. Yeah, it's, that's... A, a typical story. A lot of people, like I flourished comedy wise during the pandemic. Like I wrote material. I was performing Zoom shows every night of the week. It was good. Or, you know, Zoom shows were good or bad, depending on how yeah. you know. Like just like regular shows. Some Zoom sometimes shows, Zoom shows were bad or not that bad. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, like uh, Plano, we did the they did the virtual festival that year, and we had two hundred people watching in every show. That's awesome. It Flappers was. had a lot of really good shows because that both them and other people did this where they treated it like a real live show. Yeah, they had a tech person running thing, running it. They had music in between. They monitored the audience to make sure that they, they you had somebody to monitor the audience so in case they started talking uh, and didn't realize their mic was on. You they can mute them. We private message. So there was good shows and and bad shows, and there were god awful shows too. But to me, it's no that there wasn't that much difference because. Sometimes you're doing shows for, in real life, you're doing shows for 200 people or five 14. people. <laughs> uh, I, I really wish that, I, like, every show that I'm headlining, I just wish they'd say it's like uh, This Club Presents because I'm just not anywhere famous enough. Like, did you watch the show tonight? I was in and out because I was setting things up, but... I am not trying to... Sound like I am a very modest person, mm -hmm. and I'm very realistic about where I am with talent in all aspects of life. But I am great at stand up comedy, and nobody knows it. Yeah. So, like, I'm headlining a show, and there's 14 people there. And every person that walked out of here, I had a notepad set up. I was like, Hey, if you want to know when I'm coming back to town, put your name and email. They all did it. You yeah. know, they were all like, hey, we want to come see you again. And it happens at every show that I do. But just, we we live in a society of fame. So every show that is like Mitch Burrow, nobody knows who Mitch Burrow is. Yeah. So no one buys tickets to to see that show. And it's very frustrating. And it is, there's that, that adage where people talk about if you put... Names on a flyer for, to promote a show, and no one knows the names, they're not going to go. But if you just put comedy and no names, they're more likely to go. Yeah. I mean, I run a show in Wichita Falls, which is 100,000 people. I put out a $250 Facebook ad for the show, and I'll put a clip of the comedians that are going to be on there, but I call it Liquid Laughs. It's, li it's the Liquid Laughs comedy show in Wichita Falls. 
and I sell out just about every single time, you know, because it's not, like it's unless you're saying, "Hey, Joe Rogan's going to be here." Or, or, you know, like somebody saying, name, yeah. they're not coming for a comedian. They're coming to see a show. Yeah. And so I just put up like one minute clips of each person that's going to be on or something like that. Just so they can see the show's going to be funny. But they're not coming to see Mitch Burrow from Crazy Ass Criminal. <laughs> the show that didn't last. Yeah. A show that nobody watched. Yeah, I mean, I feel you on that because like I, while I flourished during the pandemic, as soon as everything opened back up, all the comedians who didn't do anything, who didn't sit around, jump back on the shows, and they're the ones that got all the bookings. Yeah. And here's me who worked for two years every day doing comedy, making a making making people laugh and doing shows and working hard and making connections and networking, and they're like, "Oh, you did Zoom shows. You don't count anymore." I just felt like some of us went out of our way to help the clubs, mm-hmm. and then. When everything opened back up, they forgot that. Yeah. And that's where I... Like, I was a door guy at the store. They're having problems, like, getting people to come out when they, like, opened up outside areas and stuff like that. And and I'm there for them. And then when everything opens up, they're like, we got to get Theo back. We yeah. got to do this. And I get it. But also, like, don't forget about the people who were there when you, when nobody else was coming. You know, like, throw me something. Yeah. And oh, you're going to bring Theo in? Well, let me open up for Theo so I have an audience of people to actually see me. Yeah, there. and look, here's the thing. I I, I, I get it, but you you got to get people in so that the place can be busy, and you got to do that by putting on the name. But you don't got to put me on every show. Yeah. But just remember that I was there doing comedy through a window to the people who were drinking out on the patio so that they had an incentive to be there instead of the the bar down the street that has chicken wings. You know, I was the reason, you know, not Mitch Burrow, but comedy. Yeah. I was the reason that they were there. So, you know, don't forget about... Also, I just had a baby. <laughs> you know, like, I need something. And I, I just felt like, you know, there's a little bit of... Ma- manic like disorder there too like I it was just a really unhealthy time mentally for a lot of people so you know I was just falling apart and I felt like no one was there for me and that's when I was like to hell with it I'm gonna move to the most rural part of Texas possible ah that's and that's that, where I'm at and and you're gonna have to work well if you're a road comic you can do the road from anywhere yeah you live you know, so you got that at least. But let's start because I was really interested about your your service in the Marines because uh, very few people think that the military is funny. So what, I mean, they, when you were young, what made you want to go in the in the Marines? Was it well? You're about the same age as me. I'm 42. You're what? About 43. 43. So we're yes. exact same age almost. So we both grew up with like the GI Bill. Let the military. Let Uncle Sam pay for your college. Serve yeah. your four years and then go to college. Was that uh, something that... No. no. <laughs> I, I had a GED. I had no interest in going to college. Uh, my grandfather retired out of the Army with 20 years. My mother was active duty when I went in. She was active duty Navy. Okay. So uh, you come from a military family. Yeah, a lot of people were in the military in my family. But I, I just, like, I wanted to work. I hated school. 
Um, and I just wanted to do something. I, I didn't like studying and doing homework. Like, I wanted to be, like, active. And, you know, the military was just... Also, I grew up in the country shooting guns, riding four-wheelers, mm-hmm. uh, camping. Like, the military just seemed like all the stuff that I enjoy doing and maybe some guy like, yelled at you every now and then. Shooting guns, riding tanks, plastic cannons. Yeah. yeah, they were like, oh, you like, you like Jeeps? Have you ever, like... Driven a tank before, <laughs> uh, and I was like, "Dude, let's let me introduce you to a Humvee." Yeah. Right. <laughs> oh, you shoot a nine millimeter? Have you ever shot a grenade launcher? <laughs> and dude, let me tell you, grenade launchers are the funnest. <laughs> I'm not talking about like the rocket launcher, right? That you see people on their show. A grenade, a grenade launcher. It's it's like the grenade is like like uh, I don't know, maybe like eight inches. Um, and it's like you sit behind it on the ground, and you aim it, and you you go, dee, 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 right? And then like a few seconds later, you just hear, uh, hey, look, man, I ain't doing. My wife is calling me. Yeah, you can take the call if you want. Yeah, it's your wife. It's important. Yeah, man, I'm sorry. No, it's fine. I have no idea what this is about. Let me see. Oh, Lord, I was going to Oh, hey. First, why are you talking like that? I'm being sweet. <laughs> yeah, because I thought I thought there might be something wrong. Oh, see, I'm glad that this is on video. <laughs> People can see what I got put up with. I'm, I'm like honestly, like, hey man, do you mind if I answer the phone? My wife is calling. It could be an emergency. <laughs> yeah, and I care about you too, which is why I interrupted this podcast to see what your dumb ass had to say to me. I thought you you're supposed to be asleep by now. That's the whole reason. All right, well I love you. It honestly, like there was only sixteen people in the audience, but it was great. Yeah, they it was like half of the audience was all like mothers, and I just I just did probably like fifteen minutes on Billy, and what a monster she is, <laughs> and they loved it. And then I did the stuff about uh, being in the delivery room with you and uh, female hysteria, which they also all love. So it it was great. Uh, I love you, babe. All right, I will. I'll talk to you tomorrow. All right, sleep well. Bye-bye. You can leave all that in. (laughs) Let the world know I gave up my life for someone who got mad that I cared enough to answer the phone. Gave up all my dreams so I could be like, oh, this could be an emergency. Well, fuck you, motherfucker. Well, your dreams weren't shooting off grenades? Man, at one point in time... That's honestly, like, one thing I'll say is, like, my dream growing up was, all I wanted was to be in the military. And, yeah, I'm I'm fat now. Well, I was kind of a fat kid, so, like, I had to work hard to get in shape to go into the military. I had to work hard to to stay in the military, Uh, and I did that. And I did what I wanted to, like, I've always felt like, that was what I always wanted. 
And I did that, so now everything else after that is kind of a bonus. So, like, you know, it's... That's, well, that's interesting that, as a child, you didn't have much of a of, of a dream or a future. You're like, well, I guess I'm just going to go into the military, and that's going to be my life. Man, but, hold which, on, I, man. I, There's nah, nothing nah, wrong nah, with nah, that. Nah, nah, some nah, people me, don't have that forethought. But, you, I mean, look, I, I joined the Marine Corps. Yeah. Okay, now, for a, for a little chubby kid who wasn't, like, the star athlete or anything, being able to make it into the elite branch of the military, that's a pretty big deal. Also, it's not like I just went to boot camp and then nothing else happened after that. I was stationed in Okinawa, Japan. I went to Hong Kong, Korea, Singapore, the Philippines, Spain. I went to Iraq. Like, I did a lot of shit before I turned 22 that most people won't ever experience in their their life. life. And so I know, like, a lot of people don't... Like, a lot of people look down on the military... But the truth is, it gave me a skill set that makes it where no matter where I'm at in my life, I can always go and make $100,000 a year, which isn't rich, but it's more than enough to take care of me and my family. Yeah, no, matter, a, no matter where I'm at in the country, off a, 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 I can that. do that. You know, I got scared, so then I went back to, to that. And also, like, it changed me as a person. Like, you know, I was just some dumb kid, and then... When you go through, like, the training and stuff that the military has to offer, it's a big deal. It changes you. So, I know a lot of people think, like, just dummies who can't do anything else, that, that's what they, they turn to. But, I mean, I know people who had, you know, like, college degrees that were like, this is what I want to do. And, and that's what they did. Oh, dude, I went to, I went to, college, I went to six years of community college and didn't graduate. And I... Uh, finished what should have been three degrees, one in radio production, one in television production, and one in broadcast journalism. 20 years later, I'm sitting on a couch with you hoping that all of this works and syncs up for my podcast. So if you're talking to people who went to a lot of college and... How How great is it when you do an hour long podcast and then when you go to upload the files, none of them... (laughs) <laughs> so far, that has not yet to happen. So don't let's not jinx it, Man, jinx it today. But I, I know some people that have. I, I just did a podcast with a dude in in uh, in Miami, and he was like, "Hey, man, if you see one of these red lights turn off." Please tell me, because I got about five minutes recorded of an hour last week. And I was like, oh, God. oh yeah, my head's on the swivel, checking all three of them. Then it's, you gotta, yeah. then you gotta go back and do it all like it's the first time. Yeah. You gotta pretend like you're being genuine again, you know, and that's just not. We're comedians, not actors. Yeah, well, that's the thing that, like, with me doing this remote setup on this, this is me having to worry about doing this stuff and making sure I have no backup backups in my studio at home. I have a, a professional built studio at home, and in there I have three three backups. And if something goes wrong, I have something else that to back it up. That's why I've never lost anything. If one of these cameras die. I'm back to trying to figure out how to how to do it. What are these gonna cameras? Do. These are Zoom Q8s, and that's the H4, the Q4. Oh, so this is the same company that that makes the, the audio H4 recorders, in yeah. and the H6 in. Okay, mm-hmm. but they basically put their recording microphones into a digital cameras. So, oh. and I use it at home as my webcam, and then I do record to it to as a backup. But since that's my business is is. 
for the past 25 years has been audio, radio, television, remote broadcasts, doing that. And then also to be told by the podcast industry when I moved out of radio into podcast, to be told by people from NPR, they, they go, oh, you worked in radio? That doesn't qualify you to make a podcast. I'm like, are you, what? We invented podcasts. What are you talking yeah, about? Yeah, NPR. <laughs> I always, uh, I've, I've never been able to figure out how to turn it into a bit. <laughs> but I love slash hate the the interview style of of NPR. Right, like if you if you listen you're, to you're like this American to NPR. Welcome to This American Life. Yeah. Right. And uh, all right. So I, I'm gonna I'm gonna switch the roles a little bit. I'm going to be the the interviewer. Okay. And this is not how it, the interview goes, but this is what you hear on the podcast. All right. So tell me, what what do you do for a living? Well, I go to tour. I, I live, work in Boston. So and, and right the now zone. he's telling me about <laughs> and how then I go he through lived in Boston. It was like, hey man, <laughs> shut up. And just let me hear that guy say it. Yeah, they have that documentary style where they're narrating everything. And they'll but listen, they're yeah. narrating words That's that the other person say. is saying. It's like, you don't have to do that. This isn't Blue Planet where I, I'm watching ants build a, build a mound and you, you're explaining to me how they're doing it. <laughs> this guy is saying, like, I, I, I work in television and COVID made things difficult. And then you go, and during COVID, while working in television, things got difficult. <laughs> oh, I've had jobs where uh, I go do recording for podcasts for, like, an NPRS company like that. And they're like, hey, when you arrive, just turn on the recorder because we want to hear them answer the door. I'm like... Oh. Nobody cares. Nobody cares. We want to hear the candid moments before the interview starts. Yeah. And it always, it's oh, it's like, so there was like this murder that happened, but let's just hear how they <laughs> answer the door and invite you into their kitchen. <laughs> how they just tell us how they killed this person. <laughs> what was the job that you were doing in the Marines? I worked on helicopters. I was okay. a, a helicopter mechanic, and the, the helicopter was... The CH-46, which was like a Vietnam-era helicopter that okay. we were still using in the early 2000s. The ones you see in uh, Full Metal Jack where he's flying across the rice fields and I'm just sure plucking people off going, Get some! Get some! <laughs> that's a Huey. Okay. All yeah. right. The 46 looks like a hot dog. And instead of uh, a main rotor and a tail rotor, it's tandem rotor. So it has okay. two big rotors on top of the front and the back. Okay. Uh, the the army has one that's bigger called a Chinook, but it, it looks like that, but it's just a little smaller. Okay. So that was my granddad's thing. My granddad was like, hey, join the Marine Corps if you want, but please, like I was in the army forever, I know, just get a job that's going to give you a skill. Do you get to pick that when you're in basic training? You're like, hey, I want to go this you route? You do it or? before you sign up. Okay. So while you're going through the recruiting process... You can either sign up open contract, which means, you know, hey, I didn't do too good on the test, so give me whatever you will. Or you can go like, hey, I did really good on the test. This is the career field that I want. So I I did really good, uh, especially on the mechanical portion, so I wanted to work on airplanes. And that's what I got. I got to work on helicopters. My brother, he's 25 years younger than me. He's in boot camp right now. Uh, He... 
also did really good. He's doing cyber security forces. Okay. Oh, that's right. definitely transferable into the world now. Yeah. My sister worked Intel. <laughs> uh, she's out now. She makes like $180,000 a year doing I don't know what. <laughs> She's also not allowed to tell you what. So. I mean, who knows what it is. Also, like, here's what I realized about guys is we unless someone offers us information, we don't really ask. Like, I'll I'll hang out with a friend that I haven't seen in, in a couple years, and we might talk about, you know, sports or, you know, what the what car we're driving or whatever, and then I get home and and my wife will be like, so so how's his wife and kids? And I'll be like, I don't know. He didn't say anything about it. You didn't Never ask? came up, yeah. You didn't ask? Well, no, because he didn't, like, I don't know, maybe he doesn't want to talk about it. I'm not going to pry. <laughs> my grandmother would always, I'd come home and I'd hang out with all my friends from high school. And she'd, she'd always ask me, like, so what's BJ doing for work these days? I, I don't know. We just went out to have a beer. I wasn't interviewing him for a job. <laughs> so, you know, it's like my sister, I don't, she, she doesn't tell me. I don't dig into it. So, for all I know, she makes $180,000 as a janitor somewhere, <laughs> which I would love to find out where that's at. <laughs> well, so you have this now skill set working on helicopters. Yeah. Two questions. One, how transferable is that skill set to other aircraft? 100%. Is it? Okay. Yeah. And then second question is, what was the plan after the military? Um, I was going to go to college and uh, be a teacher. <laughs> I had a GED, but while I was deployed to uh, Iraq, I took the ACT, and I scored you know, pretty good on it. Uh, What's the ACT? I don't know what that so is. So you know what the SAT is? Yeah. It's just another college aptitude exam. test. Okay. Yeah, and uh, so I I took the ACT, scored high enough on that to to get into college, and um, I I I was planning on transferring to the University of Georgia, so I, I I went to a tech school, did like a year of it, and remembered how much I hated going to school. So a friend of mine was like, "Hey, I'm going to work on the Osprey." which is a really cool aircraft uh, that crashed a lot. And, <laughs> and he was like, a, I'm on this flight test program. Uh, it pays this much. Do you want to do it? I was like, yeah, dude, I'm so done with school. So uh, I moved to California and did that. And, and I was mm, there for three years when I decided to, to try comedy. Okay. And what was the impetus to start doing comedy? I love everyone it. has that moment where it's like you're the funny guy in the office, or something in your life happens that's tragic. And you're like, I realize that I don't have that much time in life, and I wanted no. to do it, or it's virtual. Or some people are just like, I was at an open mic and they sucked, and I realized I can do this better than them. No, I listened to uh, to Raw Dog. On XM satellite okay. radio, like nonstop. And if I wasn't listening to that, I was listening to Opie and Anthony, which mm-hmm. was a morning yep. show. And they had Patrice O'Neill, Louis C.K., Bill Burr, like all the great New York comedians were always guests on that show. Jim Norton was the third mic. Yep. It was just con- like if I if if the radio was on, it was some form of comedy. Uh, and so I just like. I picked up the structure, the cadence of it. Uh, And so when I would be at parties, 
hanging out, I would tell these stories about my time in Thailand or things that we did in the Marine Corps or just, you know, something that I did growing up. But I would tell these stories with the same cadence and structure as a joke. And people were laughing. And I was like, oh, well, I love comedy. Maybe I can actually do this. So I signed up for an open mic and went and did it. My first time was great. Where was your first open mic? At the La Jolla Comedy Store in San Diego. Okay. Still there? Yeah, it is. Uh, absolutely still there. And um, I mean, I come from Boston. There's a lot of stories where it's like, oh, I started at the Chuckle Fuck up on Route 1, which is no longer around. Or yeah. you know, I did an open mic at a VFW hall in Maine, somewhere in the backwoods of nowhere. Well, I ended up... In, I, uh, so I ended up moving to Seattle, which is where I really got my start. And I performed at a club called Giggles. Okay. And I was there for maybe two to three years. And then Giggles, the guy who owned it, lost his lease. The lease was up and the guy didn't want to renew it. So Giggles closed down. The guy that owned the building turned it into a strip club. (laughs) Uh, And he was so cheap that he named it Jiggles. Because Giggles, the G was in cursive, and it looked like a J. And so instead of having to get a new sign, <laughs> he just left the old sign up and just checked, named it Jiggles instead of Giggles. <laughs> and the the like most messed up part is, like when it was Giggles, like it really messed me up. Because when it was a comedy club, I was there probably three nights a week. Doing, doing comedy, you know, like, it was a big part of my life, and then it turned into a strip club, and I was there, like, every night, <laughs> Just, it became an even bigger part of my life, um, but, so, then there was another comedy club called Laughs in Kirkland, and they, it's it, so funny you're saying these names, because in Boston, we have a Laughs, everywhere, we have a Laugh Boston, and we have a Giggles, there are both the big heritage clubs. Yeah. Like, I mean, it's just w- what it is. You know, there's the, you know, funny bone. The yeah. Chuckle you only have so many, so many names. Yeah. So laughs, the, the guy who turned it into a strip club, the, the city shut it down because it was too close to a school. Uh, and so then he rented it so well, the reason who, why I'm so close to the school is so when they're done with stripping, they can go pick up their kid easily. <laughs> I thought you were going to say so they could get back to algebra class. <laughs> but uh, they ended up renting that space, and they, they turned it into to laughs again. And I had worked for them for a long time, too. Uh, I, and I just, you know, you, you have such a... Circle of life. The relationship with comedy club owners is so fickle. Mm-hmm. Especially in the place that you came up. Yeah. You know, because they don't ever want to look at you as anything other than the guy that they gave stage time to. Yeah. So, like, when you start headlining clubs, they'll be like, we'd love to have you come back. We, we'll give you $800 with no hotel. Mm-hmm. It was like, nah, man. Like, pe- places that have never seen me are, are giving me, like, two grand at least, you know, and a hotel. Yeah. Uh... Why are you like treating me so poorly? And then they're like, "Well, you know, you owe us. We are the reason." Oh, it's like there are other clubs that I performed at. You weren't the only place. Yeah, just so happens that those other clubs are offering me the same deal. <laughs> so I will never come back to that city and perform, which sucks. But you know, I just 
And they never look at you as being anything bigger than what you were. What? When was the moment that you realized comedy could be a job that you can make a living from? I'm still waiting. <laughs> a friend of mine always has this question uh, on his podcast when he talk because his whole podcast is about TV, and he always would ask people, "When did you realize that t- television was made? That it was people making it? You know, that people writing these words and acting these out and stuff." And to me, I never ever can remember when I didn't realize TV was made. Like when I was a small kid, and I thought Captain Kangaroo was real, but. There was a point, like, in my cognitive life where I always knew that TV was made by people. Movies were made by people. There was people who wrote this stuff. They were paid to do it. And I knew the same thing about comedy for the longest time. And that's what, that, what helped me back from doing comedy is because I knew before I... It was going to take 10 years of hard work before I could even make it a, a living. And there's no guarantee there will be a living made it. Coming from the guy who's currently just celebrated his 13th year in doing comedy regularly as opposed to the 10 years beforehand where I was doing comedy off and on. And it was like, I always knew that there was a, a living that could be made doing this stuff. I never thought it was something I could do because when I would watch the comedians on like uh, late night shows, I thought that like they were geniuses. Mm-hmm. So I was like, there's no way that you can do that. And then I, you know, start listening to it. And like I said earlier, like you just figure out the structure. And so, you know, they, it, it was still such a long time before... Honestly, like, when I started it, I was like, oh, I can do this as my career. Then, after a few years, I was like, man, I don't, like, you got, it's like winning the lottery to be able to do this as your yeah. career. Um, but, you know, what, was there ever a, a single moment? I think, I think when it's, like, with that question about, like, when do you realize TV is made, I think it's when you're a, a child and you go to Disney World and the characters don't talk to you. <laughs> and then you're like, oh, they're not real. This is all like made up. So the, I think at a, a young age is when you realize what acting is. Uh, but as far as like comedy and when you can... Never. You can, nev- like, you can do this forever. And you'll never be able to make a career out of it. There's... Now, like, things have changed now, which, like, when I moved to L.A., I was born in the in, in 1980, so I grew up with real sitcoms on the four big networks, you yep. know, ABC, NBC, CBS, and Fox. That was it. And when we were kids, Fox was new. Fox was, you know, like, Fox had premiered, what, in, like, 84? Yeah. Like, there was, it was nothing before that. But that's what faint, that's what success was. Going to Montreal, doing just for laughs, and then getting a, a sitcom. So when I moved to L.A., that was my focus. Where really, for the last, like, 15 years, I should have just been doing a podcast. Yeah. Because that's what fame is now. Like, as a comedian, you're better off doing your own thing, cultivating your own audience, and then being able to, to tour, and those people that are truly fans come and see you, as opposed to being on a, on a show that's on one of the 20 streaming networks now. And, you know, maybe, you know, maybe a thousand people know who you are, as opposed to back when, you know, when we were young, you know, you, you were on a sitcom, seven million people watched yeah. or whatever. Every week. Yeah. They knew who you were, your name, household names. I mean, I mean, look, at not even like, there's the bigs, like Roseanne and, um, you know, Seinfeld and all that. But then there's the, the, the smaller ones, like Brett Butler. You know, she had her own sitcom. 
Yeah. And she was a household name at the time. And then her her star burned very bright, very quick, and it went away. But yeah, but also for every one of those that had a sitcom, there's a hundred other comedians that never got even in the pitch meeting. But in that time, you could just make a career, like a good career, being a road comic. So, mm-hmm. but all that's gone now. Uh, and then, of course, the same kind of conversation we're having now, someone's going to be having the, the opposite of it. It's like, what I should be doing is put all my effort into TikTok, because that's all people want. They want those 10-second videos or whatever. You know? I just did a show with someone who has uh, over half a million TikTok followers, and uh, he wasn't able to do 12 minutes Dang. on the show, and was, like, mediocre at best, because, you know, he's trying to get into stand-up. I think that will... I think that's going to change very soon. I think people are going to go to enough shows and realize that these people aren't good live performers. And it's going to change to where... I, I think it's going to cycle back well, to where people go to see like real comedians. See, that, um, I would love to agree with you, but what I've seen through it is we have that cycle of different platforms that make it big. YouTubers, Vine stars. Now it just happens to be TikTok. And there's going to be another one that replaces that. And I think that there's always... Like, even before all that, the, how many comedy clubs would have afternoons where they have uh, uh, soap opera stars come in and just do signings because they, they bring in more money than and more people than, 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 than we have. I think there's always going to be that cycle of a different thing that happens to be hot and popular now yeah. that they're going to use to supplement the income that they're not making from being a full-time comedy club just to be able to support putting people like you, me, and other comedians on stage. They're going to have to the clubs will have to sell their souls a little bit to bring in that that whatever. You know, yeah. like they can give you a headlining weekend because they got Jimmy the Boney. I just think the problem with that is that people come see those shows that, and then they're not as entertained as they thought they were going to be. Mm-hmm. So then they don't go see the people that they don't know. Whereas if, if just like they had just good comedians and people could rely on that... They would go, I don't know who that guy is, but I love stand-up comments. So let's just go watch watch this person. I uh, Also, sell my tickets for $15 instead of <laughs> what you charge for the, the bigger fee for. Make it more affordable and more people will go. Who knows? But, yeah. So, what, why did you leave L.A.? Was it because of the pandemic? Yeah, I mean, my daughter was born and I just, I, I got scared. I didn't know if I was going to be able to so, supporter um my wife tried to talk me out of it my wife was very supportive really believed in me and uh it's nice to have the support of somebody i mean still like i live two hours from dallas five hours from austin but whenever i get offered shows she's like yeah you should go do it uh we just um you know i just got called up this weekend to to feature down in austin at the mothership and my wife oh worked i was like yeah well I'll, i'll figure out what to do with with Billy while I'm working, so you just go, you go do the shows. So she's super supportive in that, and I, I really should have listened to her. Um, but you know, when you're going crazy, uh, there's nothing. No one can ever tell you anything that's going to fix it. And I was just like scared out of my mind and uh, had lost hope. And I was like, I, I'm just going to go back to doing what I used to do. And I and thought you, I was going to quit comedy. Uh, t- see. Uh, the people who need to quit comedy, if you need to, do it. But they never do. Yeah, well, there, there's a lot of people we wish would quit comedy. But there's a couple of friends I've had that's like, it's just, I was not happy. And I was like, find your happiness. Yeah. You know, if, if not doing comedy is going to make, like, I had a friend. 
Finally got married, met the woman of his dreams, married her, and he's like, I don't want to do comedy anymore really because the only life. person I want to make laugh is my wife. And she yeah. does that. You know, but there's some people like uh, out, out there that, that need this. You, you want to quit all the time, but you know. I mean, my buddy. Like, the reason I do stand up uh, when I tell people, like, why do I do stand up is because if I wasn't doing it on that stage, I'm doing it just like you at a party. Yeah. I got everybody around me. I'm talking, I'm jiving, I'm telling stories, and I'm doing that. And if I wasn't doing it on the stage, I'd be doing it on the floor of somebody's house. Yeah. And that's why I, I that I'm on stage doing that. Well, my friend Dave Wade told me, he was like, I, I never knew anybody who quit comedy that their life didn't get better. And when I quit and moved to Texas and everything kind of got worse, I was like, maybe I wasn't supposed to quit. And then I I just had somebody who really believed in me and he kept pushing me. And then he had, he, he passed away last year before Christmas and I'm sorry. Yeah, I mean it, it really it really messed me up. Um but he he like believed in me so much. He was opening up a club in Austin and he, and he wanted me to be down there and and then he passed away and it just like lit something inside of me that had been gone for a while and I just uh, kind of was like I'm gonna, I'm gonna do what he knew I could and so I just I started hitting up the mothership uh, and I, I ended up getting past there and I just started reaching out to all the clubs in Dallas and was like hey you know I've, I've done this and this like I, I can come perform whenever and uh, Plano here uh, Brittany she, 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 she picked me up and Started putting me on shows, so, uh, and then I started putting out more content. Like I, I like quit social media altogether, and I just started putting stuff out on on social media again because I was like, this dude. Uh, I wish I would have done it while he was still here, but I know that that's something that he he believed I could do, and uh, you know when he, when he passed, I was like, fuck, let's. It's not too late, so that's what. That's it. That's why I'm here doing this shit now. So it's not. It's, it's good that you had that support system. You had a friend that was pushing you. You have a wife that's being supportive. I she's mean, not. She's not nagging you. She's not saying your comedy's getting in, interfering with the family. She's like, we'll find a way to make it work. Yeah, and that's wife, beautiful that you have that. My wife being supportive and my friend dying were the two <laughs> most important things for me continuing to do comedy. She came into your life and he went out of your life. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> well, if people want to, uh, Mitch, where can people find you now that you're putting clips out on social media, now that you're embracing that, where can they find you? So TikTok, Instagram, it's all Mitch Burrow. Uh, Facebook, I'm sure if you're on Facebook, we're already friends. So. <laughs> um, it's all Mitch Burrow. Uh, I put up stuff regularly, whether it's stand-up clips or I do redneck astrology and redneck tarot card readings. <laughs> so it's like really fun, silly stuff. So follow me on social media and then, you know, clubs will start booking me because I'll have <laughs> enough followers on social media because that's what it takes these days. Well, look, I'm glad that you embrace the social media aspect because there's so many people that don't and you're having fun with it. So at least that's bringing you the joy of that. So thanks for taking the time after the show hey, and talking thanks, to me. Thanks, man. I appreciate you uh, inviting me on your podcast. Absolutely, of course. And All right. Go, go enjoy the uh, hotel room before Thank I drive you. I'm going to have one more shot before I leave. Awesome. They're not going to let me do that.